Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello and welcome to Spooky Psychology Hello, Megan and Lauren. I love your hello. It's so cheerful. Hello, I'm here. I am ready. Yes. So here and ready. And I'm here, but I think a tad less ready than Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not there, but I appreciate your energy. Yes, I will give energy to everyone who needs it right now. Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We're very excited about the topic today. Um, but before we get into it, we just wanted to talk about a couple of things. Um, so first and foremost, I think it's necessary that, you know, we just send positive thoughts and heartfelt, um, you know, just love to the black community all over the world, but specifically in America, just going through what is happening right now. It's really sad as mental health practitioners. I know for me, at least I've talked to my clients a ton about this. I'm sure you've probably been talking to your clients yeah. too, right, Megan? Absolutely. It has been, I think the most common topic of conversation recently um i think between covid and the black lives matter protest right now it is a very intense time globally more so in america and mm -hmm. obviously much more so if you are a person of color um yeah yeah of course um definitely talking quite a bit about that and you know everyone's feelings about the protesting and more so about the death of George Floyd. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Have you seen the video? I have not seen the video, um, but I I've seen stills and I've read transcripts yeah. of the video. I personally chose to not watch it after I heard um and so, you know, I I read the transcripts, I've read tons of things about it, I've gotten the gist of what happens on it. I unfortunately am just not the type of person that can watch a video of someone being murdered and not have a severe response to yeah. that. So I kinda had to not watch that. I was but, gonna say it made me like violently ill. Mm -hmm. You know. It's it's one of those things where you know, I don't think you necessarily have to watch it, but you know, it's yeah, very disturbing and very sad. And the purpose of me bringing it up is, um, you know, <clears throat> as mental health practitioners, um, that is first and foremost, like our job and we do spooky psychology for fun and community. And, you know, we always have a good time here, but yeah. as you probably know, most of you know, um, back during our live events, during every live event, we used to donate to charities um, and, you know, uh, definitely amplify, you know, voices of really important causes that are helping people. Um, so we wanted to go back to our roots and help during this time. Um, you know, we're doing our best to help educate as best as we can with our own clients, but we want to help using this platform too. I know we're not very big, but it is a platform. So we do want to use our voices. Um, so with that, um, we were thinking for our anniversary, which, what did you say it was, Megan? Our anniversary of starting? 
Yeah, so June 30th is the one-year anniversary of our the Spooky Psych idea, not the podcast. The podcast launched uh, last Halloween, but that was our first ever live show, was June 30th. Um, and then that one, I believe we d- I'm not sure who we did that raffle for. I can't remember either. I, I want to say maybe it was Rain. I believe it was Rain, yeah. So we, yeah. we've highlighted a bunch of topics in our live show, and we've been coming up with some ideas of things we want to bring back. And so the charity raffle, especially with everything going on, definitely seemed like the right thing to do right now. Yep, and how we can all be helpers. Um, so what we're thinking of doing is we're thinking of, as we mentioned before, I think a couple episodes ago, is we're wanting to do a live event, um, but obviously we can't do it in person. Um, so probably a Zoom live recording around the 30th. We'll, we'll do it during a weekend just so more people can join. So um, please check our, I, I guess it would most likely be the 27th or the 28th. Yes. So please check our Instagrams and Facebooks for specifics on that. I guess we'll have to decide that. Absolutely. Um, And so what we are going to do, what the setup is going to be, is we are going to start a raffle. And we're going to be raffling off probably a couple things. But Mm -hmm. the one thing we know for sure (laughs) that we're raffling off to you guys are bathrobes bathrobes as you know we we love soft fuzzy things so we'd love to send you guys some soft fuzzy things yes especially during this time we all need some soft fuzzy things um so we want to raffle that off we want to send that to you we might send something else that's more spooky psychology specific but we will see probably at least a card or something something to your bathrobe yes um so would you like to explain the entrance of the raffle or would you like me to you can explain it megan okay so we talked a lot about the best way to do this and obviously you know in this raffle with the current events um you know the past few weeks after george floyd's death we really want to help raise money for racial justice causes and for causes that benefit the black community and black lives matter and that movement So when we did our live shows, we typically just, we collected money, um, but that's not going to work in this, with everything going on right now, sending the money and then us giving it somewhere is going to be a bit too complicated. And we don't necessarily (coughs) want to, want to, you know, exclude our viewers and I guess listeners, they're not really viewing us, but our (laughs) listeners who are in other countries around the world, right? Anyone who listens can enter. And what you need to do to enter is send us a screenshot of a donation that you have made to any racial justice um, or black community-based charity kind of cause and then just a screenshot of their mission so we talked about doing specific you know like black lives matters the naacp but there are so many cool local organizations and we would love to encourage you guys to look at what's available in your area 
Because there might be charities that you've never heard of that are doing really great work for the black community that should, you know, be getting donations that should be celebrated. So it doesn't have to be a national organization, but anything that really is working hard to benefit the black community, Black Lives Matter or racial justice causes. And um, we just need the mission statement to like verify because I don't think either of us has the time to Google every charity that could All possibly be involved in this. So please <laughs> screenshot both your donation and your the mission statement, and then yep. you will be entered into the raffle. So the raffle... Where should we have them send it? Like, as, like, a Facebook or Instagram message? I would say Facebook or Instagram, whichever one you use. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. So you can just send it via one of our Instagrams or through our Facebook, and we'll plug those at the end, too. Yes, absolutely. So you can send it there, and then you will be entered to win exciting and comfortable spooky psych prizes. Yes! We all want this. It benefits everybody. It, uh, you know, it's, uh, <coughs> you're donating money to a good cause and potentially getting a fuzzy bathrobe. So it's a really win-win situation. <laughs> In my mind, yes. I think it's great. So that is our raffle. And then we will also be posting more specific information about our live show event. Lauren, I believe we were going to do $5 tickets for that live show yes um so i'll probably <clears throat> once we decide on the date um i'll probably create like an event bright kind of situation um and the information will be sent to you to join our zoom so you can watch and participate perfect and in that we will also um for that event bright for our live show we'll send you that link and i believe our patrons will automatically get to come to that live recording and so there is that and i think we may announce the winners of the raffle on the live recording but you do not have to be on the live recording to win the raffle if you are not there we will contact you we will find you (laughs) we will always find you we will find you and aggressively give you a bathrobe just, just aggressively. It's like that meme where the person, the Amazon delivery driver is like putting the person in their pajamas and they're like, this is new. This is the new prime <laughs> thing. It'll just be Lauren and I just creeping and just like draping a bathrobe over your shoulders like and patting here. you on the head and then walking away. <laughs> it's a new coping skill. Yeah, that's that's our new thing. Um, but we will not do that. We won't come that to your house. Be Don't be alarmed. Okay. But <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. So uh, today we're talking about something I'm so excited to talk about. This Megan, what is the topic? The topic today is bizarre psychological studies. So the entire field of psychological research, it is interesting. It is bizarre. And Hot it is often mess. racist if you look historically. Yep whole lot of racism in early psychology and just you know dehumanizing in a lot of ways right a lot of things that ethically would not fly anymore and so we're gonna tell you some stuff about research and then some really widely known bizarre studies and then some lesser known bizarre studies and they are juicy the tea is hot they are so 
so interesting. I love this topic so much. I think especially since Lauren and I both did research. <clears throat> yes, we're both very passionate. We are, and we also... Um, I was in two different research labs. Lauren, did you do a second one, or were you just in the one? I did. Um, I used to help out um, with Dr. Lovejoy's lab, too. Oh, okay, okay. So, I know in mine, I actually did get to be uh, an undercover researcher in one of the studies, which was super fun. Um, So, I've been involved in a lot of different ways, so we can, I think, speak directly to some of the ethical Mm -hmm things but uh lauren why don't you start telling us about some of the laws that are here to protect us from researchers who are (laughs) a little too far yes absolutely so um like megan was saying you know laws haven't always been in place but i'm going to tell you how they got established um usually it was because something horrible happened and then a law needed to be put in place to protect people um, so the first one that I wanted to talk about is something called the Nuremberg Code. Um, so this was established in 1948. Um, and what it basically indicated is that the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. So we need that consent. Um, making it clear that the subject should give consent and that the benefits of the research must outweigh the risks. That's super important. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason this got put in place is because the American military opened criminal proceedings against 23 leading German physicians and administrators for their willing participation in war crimes and crimes against humanity. So these German physicians actually conducted medical experiments on thousands of concentration camp prisoners without their consent, which is problematic at best. And I feel like at some point we need to do a deep dive into that because the psychology, there are so many interesting psychological things happening in terms of the Holocaust and people following, listening to authority when they should not have been listening to authority and experimentation and everything. Um, so we're not going to go into it too much today because that is like a three-hour episode minimum. <laughs> There's so much to say about that. Yeah. Uh, but maybe we'll add that to our list of topics. Good idea. Yeah, let's definitely do that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so if you're wondering what happened to these prisoners that were experimented on, um, most of the subjects died or permanently crippled as a result. So not ideal. The benefits did not outweigh the risks. Um, so then, as I mentioned, Nuremberg Code got put in place. Next one is the Declaration of Helensky. So this was put in place in 1964, and it had some rules. So the rules were... The research with humans should be based on the results from laboratory and animal experimentation. So, you know, being able to test some things before conducting it on humans. Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly with medical research. Thousand percent. Less Um, psychological. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, Research protocols should be reviewed by an independent committee prior to initiation. So people unrelated to the study, they don't benefit from it in any way. Just scoping it out, making sure nothing's too crazy. 
Um, informed consent from research participation or participants is necessary, you know, and that was obviously first established in the Nuremberg Code. Um, research should be conducted by medically slash scientifically qualified individuals. So Joe Schmo off the street cannot just do these research studies. Um, and risks should not exceed benefits. Yeah, and and I will say just a point on informed consent as far as medical research is concerned. You can still do, you know, informed consent doesn't mean that you know exactly what's happening to you in a lot of drug trials. Some people are given the drugs, some people are given the placebos and it's double blind, so both the researchers and the participants don't know which is which. So informed consent doesn't mean that a person has to be like, oh, I'm in this study and I'm taking the medicine, or like, I will be taking the placebo. It's just that they know that that's how the study is done, and that they could be given a placebo. But I think a big point of that now is that typically if you're in a drug trial and you get the placebo and they find that the actual drug is working, they will eventually give you the real drug once they know that it works. They're not keeping it from you. Um, Informed consent works a bit differently with psychological studies, but we'll get into that more in a minute. Absolutely. I just Um, have a lot of opinions on informed (laughs) consent. No, I love it. I have a lot to say about it. We have strong feelings. Um, So actually, Megan, I was going to ask you to speak on this because I feel like you're more well-versed in this study. But there is a study that got put in place um, that it really put in motion the development of guidelines of ethical research. And that study is the Tuskegee Syphilis Study yeah, so remember so what is that, Megan? a minute ago when I talked about the racist history of psychology? This is a big one here because this is a lot of researchers um, doing really unethical experimentation on black men who they, I, do, I mean, I don't know the researchers, but to me this really sounds like they did not see black people as people and that's why they did this. Um, So this was hugely, hugely problematic. And I believe I actually talked about this in our last episode. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what made me think of it. I was like, oh, I can just talk about this. (laughs) I have feelings. Uh, This is terrible. So basically, it was a study on syphilis and the trajectory of syphilis. And so in this, I believe there were a few problems. Number one, certain people were given syphilis that did not have syphilis to begin to begin with. So typically, if you're trying to study the trajectory of a disease, you should not give people the disease. You should find people who already have the disease and study it that way. Right? That's point number one. Yep. Then... They basically, they were trying to see the um, the trajectory of the illness. They gave people syphilis. Some of the people I did not know that they had syphilis or were given syphilis. And then certain people were treated, certain people were not. The other huge problem is, is that even once they figured out, I believe it's certain antibiotics work for syphilis. And syphilis... Syphilis is a horrifying illness that has killed Mm -hmm. so many people in really, really gross 
ways. Um, it's very historically relevant, but now it's uh, pretty easily treatable. If you get syphilis, you catch it, you take your meds, and you're essentially fine. Yep. The other problem with this is they realized which medications work and that people were treated in totally fine, and then they promptly did not do what I said you needed to do, and just never told all of these men with syphilis that they had a cure and that they could totally do it, and just continued to study and let people die. Yep. Very so, casual. Basically, that is just a psychological research in which they were crazy unethical and just killed a bunch of black men. And so and that's really the crossover <laughs> of, like, terrible ethics and being racist as hell. Yep. So that really, you know, put in motion why <laughs> we need to have these things in place. Believe because it, or not, it was some terrible. People, some people heard about this and they're like, what the fuck are you doing? You Excuse me do that <laughs> you can't just do that that and, is horrifying yeah so this is really bad and it's a very serious study serious issue lauren and i tend to make jokes to cope with things better it's not funny no it's terrible it's terrible and it's also so to me it's just so like interesting how recent a lot of these d research developments are because, yeah. like, man, before, like, the 60s, you could do anything. It was, like, the wild, wild west for research. It was just like, yeah, you want to torture some kids? Sure, why not? Let us know how it goes. Yeah. Let us know the results. <laughs> Send the report here. Great great work. Oh, God. But, yeah, that's one of the most disturbing studies I think I've heard about, um... But yeah, thank you for telling us about that, Megan, oh, because welcome. it's a big reason why these things are in place. Yeah, not an expert. I should I should read up on it again. I haven't done like a good deep read on it in a while, but there's there's so much there. There's layers and layers and layers. Layers and layers. Okay. So next one that's worth mentioning is the Belmont Report, and that was put in place in 1979, so not that long ago, again. <laughs> um, so the report <laughs> is a statement of basic ethical principles and guidelines that should assist in resolving ethical problems that surround the conduct of research with human subjects. Um, so there's three basic principles that are part of it. So the first is respect for persons. So the recognition that people are autonomous, they're entitled to their own opinions and choices, unless detrimental to others. Um, recognition that due to various reasons, not all people are capable of self-determination and instead require protection. The amount of protection we provide to an individual should depend on the risk of harm and the likelihood of benefit offered by the research. So, as you can see, that's, like, a very important part of it that they definitely missed in the Tuskegee syphilis study. Respect for persons is a big one. That's a huge one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next one is benefice. Um, so, the recognition that people are treated in an ethical manner, not only by respecting their decisions and protecting them from harm, but also by making efforts, or more specifically, making it an obligation to secure their well-being. So, do new do no harm and maximize possible benefits and minimize possible harms. Again, definitely missed in the recent in the Tuskegee syphilis study. Yep. Next part, justice. So the benefits and risks of research must be distributed fairly. The Belmont report considers the need to scrutinize whether some 
classes of people, economically disadvantaged racial and ethnic, ethnic minorities, or persons confined to institutions are systematically selected as research subjects due to their position or vulnerability rather than their connection to the problem being researched. So you can't just take advantage of vulnerable populations is basically what that means. Right, you can't just do whatever you want and call it research. There are right. rules now. Exactly. It's, I can't get over how recent a lot of this legislature is. It's super... It's spooky. It really is. And I think this is like... This is some of the things where I'm I'm just gonna like I got I gotta just check. I need to check what year the Tuskegee syphilis was. Yeah. Look it up. But yeah, no, that that uh what was it, Belmont report? Yeah, that wasn't until nineteen seventy nine. Oh okay. So here, oh, here's here the it thing. Is. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment started in 1932 and ended in 1972 and was conducted by the United States Public Health Service. And like, and this is something, I guess for context for people who aren't in America and for people who are, think that the current Black Lives Matter protests are, like, only related to the George Floyd murder. Like, (laughs) in the (laughs) 70s, the government was still... The U.S. government was still doing this. Like, this is so recent and so much worse than some people think it is, where they're like, oh, well, you know, racism ended in the 50s. Like, no, it didn't. It's still a problem. And the government in the 72 was finally like, maybe we should stop at this point. Like, Well, thinking about, like, you know, the 60s and 72, like, my dad was, like, bopping around as a kid during that time. Like, it's, you know, it just to put it in that context of how recent that was, it's very disturbing. Right? I mean, my parents would have been, like, in their 20s. In the seven, like in the seventies, yeah. where the ended, like or turning twenty, they were both born in the fifties. So it's like that kind of thing, where like this stuff that was happening while our parents were alive, this is not like distant past. And so that's something I think that really gets me about that one specifically. It's like it's so terrible, and they didn't like they let it go for forty years. Like, for oh my God. 40 years, they just straight up did not treat people for a curable illness once they figured out it was curable. So, yep. and I don't even think it was in the study that they figured out it was curable. I think other people figured it out and the public health department is like, well, let's just see what happens. Ugh, no. so disgusting. Ridiculous. Well, and, and to the last part of like um, the Belmont report is that part about justice. And the reality of it is... I think a lot of times um, researchers, you know, they need to be very mindful of are you getting people to participate in your research because they need money and they are a vulnerable population? Because that's something that you need to factor in. Like, you can't just take advantage of people that need money and need support. Yeah. So, it's gross. It wasn't that long ago. 
this is this is something I want you to know. <laughs> we really we need to be open about how shady the entire field of psychology has been. Yep. Like as much as I think a lot of therapists now are pretty trustworthy and a lot of researchers now are pretty good. Like people have a right to be suspicious. It makes perfect yeah, sense. We absolutely as a field have acted terribly for so long that like word. I yeah. get it. I do too. Yeah. Well, I want to tell you guys about some common research rules in the U.S. today. So this is only in the U.S. I don't know what it's like in other countries. Um, if people are from the other countries, please let us know. Um, the main elements of the common rule in research in the U.S. are, um, one, it requires assuring compliance by research institutions. Um there's requirements for researchers obtaining and documenting informed consent. You know, you must have that document. People must sign and understand it. Um, the Institutional Review Board, or the IRB, Membership Function Operation and Review of Research and re Record Keeping has requirements. Um, and the IRB is something that all institutions have, um, and their job is to make sure that you're not doing shady shit. So, for example... You know, in undergrad and grad school, I had to talk to the IRB at NIU multiple times just to make sure that when I was conducting research that it was within the guidelines, I was being um, fair, and I was not harming anybody with, you know, the research that I was doing. Um, and I'm sure you probably had to talk to the IRB a few times, right, Megan? I actually did not because I did not conduct any research. I was a confederate in a research study, which oh. just means that you're a person who is in on it, but people don't know it's in on it in the field, like in the literature, it's called you're a confederate in the study. Um, but my honors project was a literature review, so I did not, oh, I did not so conduct original research, um, but, so I did not have to talk to the IRB, actually. Fun fact. Um but I was scared to talk to them. I was like, oh, God. I would be, too. Uh, can, yeah. can I tell my fun fact about informed consent in psychological studies? I just want to make it very clear in case any of you are in the United States and are participating in a psychological study. We are allowed to lie to you yeah. in studies. Informed consent does not mean that you know what's happening. It means you know you're in a study and the general purpose. But... So, like, researchers can and will lie to you in studies, but at the end of the study, they do something called a debrief of the study where they will lie to you if necessary to get the accurate information, but then mm -hmm. at the end, somebody will sit down with you and explain the entire study and answer all of your questions and tell you exactly what they're researching and then typically have you sign a confidentiality waiver. So I know both studies that I was involved in research. Um, one in David's lab straight up lied to people. Like, I know exactly which one you're talking straight about. Straight up lied, but told them at the end. In the other one um, where I was in on it, we they didn't know that we were in on it, which again is dishonesty. They were thinking like, oh, these are just college students that I'm doing that, you know, that are in on this. 
they're mm-hmm. also being studied. We were not, but again, at the end, they're like, all of these people were in on it. They were instructed to do this, this, and this, and behave this way for the purpose of the study. So it doesn't mean you know exactly what's going to happen. You can lie as long as the IRB feels it's appropriate and necessary to get genuine results because if people know exactly what you're studying they might try to skew it there may be bias involved but they will tell you at the end what's actually happening and if they don't debrief you that is a red flag absolutely you should be debriefed at the end of any study you participate in yep so well i just i remember that one study that we both participated in in david's lab um it was like like almost like a magic trick yeah Yeah, that one was very interesting um i don't i'm not sure how i feel about that one but i know i remember one time i was debriefing and like i revealed too much and like david came flying out of the back he's like you compromised the research it's like i'm sorry how did you reveal too much i told them how how i was able to make the the crying baby doll stop crying oh okay see the thing that i don't get about that one is like I think a lot of people know that, though, because, like, I know in my high school, and if you took child development, you had to take the exact baby home. And so you know how to operate the baby. So I think some people would have been able to figure it out anyways, but fair. I mean, okay. I can just imagine David getting very flustered about that. Well, I know also because it's like an, a longitudinal study, so I'm sure there's like a lot of pressure of like, please don't ruin this. Please do not ruin this for me. Fair. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. So I was like, well, I hate myself. Eagle, Moving on. Eagle man's just fluttering in here full of rage. <laughs> oh, um, God. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the research is interesting. The research that I did in the other study was super interesting but again they told people everything at the end and people were pretty relieved once they found out what was actually going on mm-hmm. um so the debrief there's a, in longitudinal studies which are studies done over time sometimes you kind of have to keep some things under wraps but the basics of your the per individual's involvement should be told to them for sure. And what you were actually researching. Because some studies you'll think you're researching one thing, but like you're you're researching a different thing. So they should tell you at the end, though. Agreed. But- oh, and, and the last part about the common research rules today. Um, there is additional protection for certain vulnerable research subjects. So, for example, um, pregnant women, prisoners, and children. Um, there's extra things put in place to make sure that you don't um, do anything damaging to those populations. Absolutely. So, now I'm going to tell you a bit about research, just because Lauren and I are research nerds, but many of you may not be. So we're just going to do a little bit of Psych 101 research time. <laughs> Real quickly, not as in-depth into Psych 101. There will be no quiz. There there will be a quiz, guys. <laughs> Spoiler alert, the live show is just a Psych 101 test. <laughs> you all passed. 
<laughs> you all get A's in our spooky psych class. Um, all right. So there's a couple different like types of research. So there's, there's experimental research, which is mostly what we're talking about today, where you're researching cause and effect and you are controlling... You're really looking to see if one variable causes another variable to occur or change. So it'd be changing the amount of a specific treatment and then measuring the effect. So experimental research is you're specifically manipulating the environment to see what happens. You are actively doing something. You're actively doing an experiment. Mm -hmm. Descriptive research seeks to depict what already exists in a group. So it's looking into what's already happening without manipulating it. <clears throat> so that would be things like people observing a playroom at a daycare to study the behavior of children. Right? I've done that before. You've done that before? Uh-huh. That's a pretty common one, actually. Um, and sometimes they'll have you, like, in a different room. So you don't mm -hmm. actually, like, so your presence doesn't change the environment. But all you're doing is studying what is actually happening. You're not changing anything. You'd be, like, watching people in public and how they interact, right? You're not doing anything. And then there's relational or correlation. Correlational. I don't know why that's so hard to say. Research. Um, tricky. Which is investigating the connection between two or more variables... Um, they're generally already present. So it would be stuff like looking at, for us, we could do, you know, some correlational research if we did a study to see how many of our listeners were male versus female, right? It's mm -hmm. like, gen or, you know, any other gender at that point. If we were like researching gender and our listening base, what yep. does gender impact if you listen to Spooky Psych or not, right? We're not changing anything about who listens. We're just examining yep. the variables and the impact on this. Or looking at, you know, if males or females would do what type of CD they would buy or things. It's a lot of gender studies or, you know, stuff like that where they're just looking at different factors. Not, again, not actually manipulating the environment or changing anything. So, a couple of different types of studies. Um, so, there's naturalist observation, like we said, in which you're just watching the environment as it actually happens. There are surveys. So, when you're giving a survey, like if we were giving a survey to all of our listeners, sending out to get demographics or something, that would be survey research. There is a case study, which is when... You're looking at one specific case. A lot of times psychologists will do case studies of clients. I know I read a case study of a client with Munchausen's or factitious yes, disorder in the last one. So that would be a case study. It is just their observation of one person's entire case. A correlational design, again, is looking at correlation. And then experimental is when you are changing the environment to attempt to have something happened and to study the effects of that. So everything we are talking about today is experimental designs. Yeah. And we're not going to go through everything like on the research side of experimental designs. Um, but I thought it would be good to break down some stuff about research and explain the experimental designs that we're doing now. 
we're not going to go over the scientific method and how you do experiments, because I think everything you need to know to understand is kind of in the story. So, Lauren, would you like to tell us some bizarre psychological experiments? Oh, I would. Um, So I wanted to tell you guys first um, a psych study that's more well known, or at least more talked about in like psych 101 classes. Um, But... In case you don't know about it, I'm excited to tell you about this it. This one is um, in every Psych 101 class. It is. is <laughs> like Because it, it's great. And by it's that, great. I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure why this is talked about so much in Psych 1. Maybe just because of the point of, like, this was before rules were in place. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so this is called the Little Albert Study. Um, so this study was done by Watson and Rayner in 1920, um, and they conducted this study to answer three questions. So, first question, can an infant be conditioned to fear an animal that appears simultaneously with a loud fear-arousing sound? Two, would the fear transfer to other animals or inanimate objects? Three, how long would such fears persist? So, um, in research, if you're familiar with Ivan Pavlov and, like, Pavlov's dogs, he showed that classical conditioning applied to animals. Um, So, they really wanted to know if it applied to humans and if you could condition someone to have a phobia. So, problematic at best, especially with an infant. Um, (laughs) Right. Like, I understand that trying to figure out if classical conditioning applies to human beings is valid research. There are other ways to do it. I think better ways to do it. Where you don't instill a phobia. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So, furthermore, um, so little Albert is the nine-month-old infant. (laughs) What do you think about a nine-month-old infant? That is a true baby. They, yeah. um, <laughs> anyway. Baby, so I mean, they, they can probably sit up, but uh, still definitely a baby. They still are new so to the world. Small. Yes. Um, they were tested. So he was tested on his reactions to various neutral stimuli. So the neutral stimuli that was tested was a white rat, a rabbit, a monkey, and various masks. Um, and he had no reaction or just very neutral reactions. However, what did startle him and cause him to be afraid was if a hammer was struck against a steel bar behind his head. Um, as it is for most people, that would horrify all of us. Um, so the sudden loud noise would cause little Albert to burst into tears, as you may expect with a nine-month-old. Poor, uh, poor Albert. <laughs> I know. When little Albert was over 11 months old, um, the white rat was presented, and seconds later, the hammer was struck against the steel bar. So after seven pairings of the rat and the noise in two sessions one week apart, Albert reacted with crying and avoidance when the rat was presented with the loud noise. So... Little Albert only had to see the rat, and he immediately showed every sign of fear. He would cry whether or not the hammer was hit against the steel bar, and he would attempt to crawl away, um, which is known as a conditioned reflex. Um, The Little Albert experiment demonstrated that classical conditioning could be used to create a phobia. 
I don't know why he would do that, but that's what it demonstrated. Um, over the next few weeks and months, little Albert was observed, and 10 days after conditioning his fear of the rat was much less marked. Um, this dying out of a learned response is called extinction. So, unfortunately, Albert's parents withdrew him from the experiment the day the last tests were made, and Watson and Rainer actually weren't able to conduct further experiments to reverse the conditioned response. So, um, the researchers confounded their own experience. So, there's problems with this research, of course, because one, it's a very vulnerable population. It's a literal baby. Um, other things that are wrong with it are the researchers ended up confounding their own experiment by conditioning little Albert using the same neutral stimuli as the generalized stimuli. So they essentially messed up their own study. Mm -hmm. um, there were no control subjects, we, which you need in a study, and it was conducted without consent from Albert's parents. <laughs> um, there is psychological harm. And the researchers were not able to fix the problem that they created. Um, so that absolutely could have been avoided if they would have told the parents what they were doing and that it was necessary for them to, you know, reverse the conditioned response. Um, but they didn't do that. So that's why it's a problem. Um, a lot of researchers actually criticize this study a lot because it's, one, is it actually creating a phobia? Um, Phobias typically involve irrational thinking, but it's not irrational to think, okay, like, if I see a rat, someone for sure is going to come behind me and hit this steel bar. Like, that's not irrational thinking. It's just, I know that this is going to happen. <laughs> um, so there's, you know, arguments of if it's actual phobia or not. Uh, yeah, so... That's that's a little Albert study. Poor little Albert. I mean, that, like, again, and this is some of the issues with earlier studies, is that sometimes the results have helped the field, but the methodology was not okay. And so right. we talk about this because it's more like, oh, and I remember when we talked about little Albert it was much more focusing on the importance of demonstrating that human beings could be classically conditioned and less on horrific yeah. this study was. Like, they yeah. touched on it. But you could have just as easily done classical conditioning in a more positive way. You could have done yes, it with... Yes, in a less harmful food. way. You could have done it with something where it's, like, pretty neutral. It's not, like, being afraid. And I believe from what I heard, like the fear ended up going to other white things. So he ended up just like afraid of a lot of white colored objects like stuffed animals and other things mm -hmm. like that because nine months old, nine month olds are not like known for their logical thinking. Not commonly, And there's no. common um, like neurological and thought mistakes of children like overgeneralizing to different things and so his age he's super prone so he that fear poor guy that must have fucked him up a bit yeah, yeah. anybody knows how he's doing let us know <laughs> he's probably dead by now but yeah i mean the study was almost a hundred years ago so yeah. he's either quite old or no longer with us r.i.p <laughs> Little Albert. R.I.P. Question mark. 
Okay. Alright, so that was my well-known one. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to tell you guys now about a less well-known bizarre study with one of our favorite guys, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund! So he did a lot of problematic things, um, yeah. and this is one of them. Okay. <laughs> so <Okay>. this study... <laughs> This study was done on Emma Eckstein. So in 1895, um, Freud had a patient named Emma Eckstein. Um, and she had come to him complaining of stomach pains and depression related to her menstrual cycle. I think as women, we can all relate to this. Also, that's our- now a recognized mental illness called premenstrual dysphoric disorder. <laughs> it's recognized, people. It's real. Yes. So basically, um, Freud, you know, and this is very, very uh, on par with the times, diagnosed her with hysteria and masturbating to excess, something he believed was both a mental illness and the root of all addiction. Um, And he wrote this in his abstract of masturbation, addiction, and obsessional neurosis. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, what Freud did is he called an, oh, I don't know how I'm going to say this, otolaryngologist? Otolaryngologist? <laughs> like, I feel like you got the first part down, but that, I don't know how to connect the two parts, so. I don't either, but what this is is an ear, nose, and throat doctor. An ENT. <laughs> um, and his name was William Fleiss, um, and he pulled him in for the treatment. So we're, we're studying a form of treatment to treat this. What he had William Fleiss do is cauterize her nose. Uh, Fleiss believed that the nose was linked to the genitals and that operating on it could squell sexual problems. Uh-huh. So, interesting. Um, <laughs> then, he and Freud cauterized her nose with cocaine. Which was legal at the time. You know, Freud and Freud loves cocaine more than he loves most things. I agree. Um, so uh, through this process, he sometimes used local anesthetic, and sometimes he didn't. So you can imagine how gnarly that was to get your nose cauterized and stuffed with cocaine. So that. That happened. They shoveled gram after gram of pure cocaine up Emma's nose. The chemicals burned through her tissue and sinuses, emitting both a surge of pus and putrefying smelling smell of burning flesh. So you can imagine how wonderful that was. Um, After the operation, they bandaged her up and Emma was sent on her way. Not surprisingly, two weeks later, she came back to Freud with nosebleeds that she was not able to stop. Um, So at this time, Freud called a different doctor to inspect her nose. And this doctor actually pulled out 20 inches of gauze that Freud and Fleiss had accidentally left up there. Um, According to both men present, blood poured from her nose like a faucet. Her eyes bulged, and she turned white. And for 30 seconds, she lost her pulse. Uh-huh. So you can see that this experiment is not going well. 
It's not treating the problem. So over the next few days, uh, she returned to Freud with near-fetal hemorrhages. Half of her face had caved in, and Freud continued treating her, giving her morphine and reapplying bandages. So for young Sigmund Freud, as we know nowadays, um, to him, cocaine was a miracle drug. So before developing psychoanalysis and the theories for which he's now famous for, um, the unconscious mind, psychosexual development, and the Oedipus complex, Oedipus complex, um, the interpretive dreams, you know, all those things. Um, Freud actually was a coke addict. So <laughs> this is a quote from Freud. Triumph, Fro Freud wrote. Rejoice for me. Through cocaine, we achieved something beautiful. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Good for you. It's unbelievable. Long-winded um, way to just say I really like cocaine. Yes. Like, and I think to anyone listening to this study, you can see that this study is not going well. Like, nothing was treated and this woman's face caved in. Um, so, you may be wondering how things turned out for Emma. So, <laughs> weirdly, she worked for several years as a psychoanalyst herself but withdrew from the world for the last 20 years of her life. Her once beautiful face remained disfigured with the nasal bone chiseled away, probably due to the cocaine, and one side was caved in. She spent all her days on a couch, never left her room, and could not walk. And she died from a stroke in 1924 at the age of 59. So, I mean, that was the Emma Eckstein experiment. That is just a batshit crazy hypothesis. Yep, that stuffing cocaine in someone's nose and cauterizing it is going to help you with period cramps and getting depressed before your period. Also, what's kind of funny is something that much more um, appropriately done research has found conclusively that masturbating an orgasm can actually reduce menstrual cramps. Therefore, yep. that would not have been a problem. Um, not that masturbating to excess cannot be a problem, but it doesn't seem like there was any evidence of her actually doing that, other than she was a woman and obviously she's hysterical, so. Yep. You know. I also, you know, obviously this was a experiment on a medical trial, you know, a, a way to fix this medically. And uh, I, I think I'm missing who the controls in the study were. I, I don't think they existed. No, no. I think Freud just wanted to shove a bunch of cocaine up this woman's nose and see what happened. Yep. So that really happened, guys. I just want you to know that. So painful to have half of your face cave in. I'm sure that, like, okay, like, obviously it's gross to think about, but imagine having your nose cauterized, so how painful that is, and then having cocaine put on top, like, that probably burned like a motherfucker. Right, and, like, nasal cauterization is a legitimate medical practice, typically for nosebleeds, nosebleeds that get out of hand, but... That's, yeah. That's, that's weird. Also, I'm not sure why the nose is connected to the genitals. Yeah, I, I, if 
If there is any evidence to prove that that's true, please let us know. But to my knowledge, I don't think the two are connected. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I haven't heard anything on that. But Freud just had such interesting theories on everything all the time. I think a lot of them were uh, influenced by cocaine. Yeah, so. most likely. So, yeah, that's a little tale for you guys. A little snack. L- little Me- treat. <laughs> to help you through your day. Um, Megan, tell us about your studies. Okay. So the first one, my more commonly known about study, I love this one because of the simplicity of it. And actually, this is not one that was unethical. My second study is very unethical, but this one is pretty okay. Um, but it's a common known study. It's called the Ash Conformity Experiment. It was done conducted by Solomon Ash during the 1950s. So I love this one because it's such a simple experiment and it was so well done, but it's really fascinating and kind of weird. So basically, psychologically speaking, conformity is a person's tendency to just follow unspoken rules or behaviors in a social group. So for a long time, researchers really had been interested in like how much people follow or rebel against social norms. Um, Ash specifically was interested in looking at how pressure from a group could lead people to conform even when they know that the rest of the group is wrong. So that's what he's looking at. So in his experiment, he had students come into a room with several confederates. So the confederates, like I said, psychological term, are people who they are research assistants, they are involved in the research, but the actual research participant does not know that. They think that they are also participants. And so (laughs) he had them come in and say they were taking part of a vision test And a total of 50 students came in to do this, quote, vision test. So it's really simple. What he did is he had basically a paper with a line and then on a different sheet, three lines. And they had to match which line, one, two, or three, was the same length as the line that they were shown. Right? Um. So pretty simple. All you're doing is saying which two lines are the same length. Most of us can do this pretty easily, pretty simple task, Mm -hmm. um, provided that you don't have vision issues. So there were 18 different trials in the experimental condition. And in the experimental condition, they had the Confederates give incorrect responses in 12 of the experiments. So they would have these people just give a completely and obviously wrong answer to which lines were matching. And the purpose was to see if the people would change their answer to go along with what the rest of the group was saying. So if most Uh of the people are saying an incorrect answer, is this person going to give the correct answer or the answer everyone else is giving? So they all gave the same incorrect answer. So in the first part of the procedure, the Confederates answered correctly, and then they eventually began to provide incorrect answers based on what the instructors had told them. There were also Mm -hmm. 37 participants in the control condition um, to ensure that the average person could accurately gauge the length of lines. Um, the control group was asked to individually write down the correct match, 
according to those results, 99% of the time the person gave the correct lengths. So I just had it write it down, so no influence. And the other one they answered out loud in the experimental condition. And what they found was nearly 75% of the participants in the conformity experimental group went along with the rest of the group at least once. So after combining the trials, the results indicated that participants conformed to the incorrect group answer one-third of the time. And they looked at the effect the number of people present in the group had on conformity. When one other person was present, there was pretty much no impact on the answers. If there were two, it had a tiny effect. Um, but if there were three or more other people all giving incorrect answers, the person was much more likely to conform and give an incorrect answer. Um, mm -hmm. Ash also found that having just one of the Confederates give the correct answer while the rest of the group gave the incorrect answer dramatically lowered conformity in that just five to ten of the percent conformed to the rest of the group. And later studies have absolutely supported this research. So this one is just so simple and so interesting that yeah. when you, people are in a group setting and everybody else agrees with something that's obviously wrong, they are pretty likely to just give in and just be like, yep, it's definitely this, just to conform with that unspoken rule. And I think, you know, even when something's so obvious, when other people are consistency like, no, it's this way, no, it's this way, you're more likely to start question. Like mm -hmm. questioning what you're thinking. So that one, I Absolutely. just... I have always loved the Ash Conformity experiments. It's not particularly spooky, but it is a big one. And I think it's also good to show that even in... This was in the 1950s. This was a mm -hmm. ethically sound and properly done research study. Um, and I wanted to show... They existed. They existed. Like, it's not like people didn't know how to do a research study. Um, like, there were ethical studies, and there were ones that were done well. Obviously, seen here, they had a control group. It was well done. Now, for a really, really intense study that I cannot believe that I have never heard of before, we're going to talk about the Robber's Cave study. Um, so this is actually two different studies done by one researcher, so I'm going to go through mm -hmm. the whole thing. So... Alright. This was done. This started in, in July of 1953. So, around the same time as the Ash Conformity experiments, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, this was, you know, I think he knew better. But this one's yeah. interesting. So, um, this was done by a researcher, last name is Sharif. He was born in the summer of 1905 and raised in the Izmir province of Turkey during the dying days of the Ottoman Empire. Just to, oh. just to paint a little word picture there about his early life. Uh, and my apologies to any Turkish people if I completely butchered that pronunciation. My apologies. Um, but he managed to win a place at Harvard to study psychology. This is like the big league studies. These were like pretty big schools doing research. Mm -hmm. um, he 
He was frustrated at Harvard by the narrowness of the discipline, which involved lab rats, and he was drawn to the field of social psychology, which was just emerging at the time, which looks at the way that human behavior is influenced on others. He became obsessed with group dynamics and how individuals band together to form groups and how different groups can basically have conflict between groups. So in... 1953, the Rockefeller Foundation gave Sharif $38,000 to conduct his studies. So, that's like $350,000 in today's money. This is a pretty high-budget study. Um, to carry out, He was. this was going to be his career-defining research. Um, there'd be no rats. The subjects were 11-year-olds, and neither them nor their parents knew what they were signing up for. So there was no informed consent whatsoever. Already a huge problem. Already a huge problem. Um, so Sharif's cover story was that he was running a summer cramp in Middle Grove. So this is the first of his experiments. His plan was to bring a group of 11-year-old boys together allow them to be friends, and then separate them and have them competing for a prize into two groups. He believed that they would basically forget their earlier friendships and start hating each other in an attempt to go towards this prize. And then his plan, which is batshit crazy, okay? I yeah. cannot... And this is not to, like, demonize people with mental illness. This is not mental illness. This is just somebody who has no sense of ethics, and I have no idea why he thought this yeah. was a good idea. So he's going to get them to start hating each other over a prize, and then he planned to set a forest fire in the vicinity of the camp, and he's like, based on the shared threat, they will start working together. Oh, God. A forest fire. He's just like, cool, I'm going to make a group of 11-year-olds hate each other and then start a forest <laughs> fire. What is this? This is, like, ludicrous <laughs> in terms of research. Very bizarre. So, this is really interesting. This is the first part. Uh, this plan did not go according to plan at all, his first study. But the surprise really? was of a different nature. So, he basically... His research staff was posing as camp counselors and caretakers, and they interfered to inter to get the result they wanted. So he thought that he could make the two groups, they were the Pythons and the Panthers, enemies, through what he was calling frustration exercises. These included the assistant stealing items of clothes from the boys' tents, cutting the rope that held up the Panthers' handmade flag in the hopes that they would blame the Python, and... One of the researchers crushed the panther's tent, flung their suitcases into the bushes, and broke a child's beloved ukulele. Um, it's just, like, fucking mean. It's just like, mean. Like, just, yeah. like, getting paid $38,000 to be mean to children. Um, and he says, to his dismay, the children could not be persuaded to hate each other. <laughs> They're just like, this sucks. Right? Like, they just did not buy it. So they, the Pythons lost a t game of tug-of-war, which was supposed to be a big, like, aha. Um, but the Pythons, at the end of this, said that the Panthers were a better team and deserved to win. Uh, Very sweet. They concluded that the missing clothes were the result of a mix-up at the laundry. Um, and 
Basically, each of the pythons swore on the Bible that they didn't cut down on the panther's flag, and all of the panthers kind of accepted that, and they're like, okay, you weren't the ones that did it. Um, by the end time of the incident with the suitcases and the ukulele, the boys figured out that they were being manipulated, and instead of turning on each other, they helped put the tent back up and became very suspicious of their, quote, camp counselors. <laughs> um, they thought... They just wanted to see what our reactions would be. Um, so basically, Sharif was angry because the boys were civilized. <laughs> like, he wanted them to hate each other. And it's really interesting. The whole thing started... Um, this was a good article on um, The Guardian. Because this study, a lot of people connect it to The Lord of the Flies. It actually started before oh. The Lord of the Flies was published so this is like pre maybe some inspo i think they were like within a year so probably a coincidence but it was oh, okay. just like this whole thing but sharif became so angry that the boys were civilized that he ended up almost getting into a fist fight with one of his helpers one of his research assistants about it um, the hell? thankfully he never started the forest fire Oh, good. So Great. he did not start a forest fire. Um, he stopped the experiment when he realized it wasn't going to support his hypothesis. Also, Sharif didn't start the fire. I love that song, as we all do deep down in our souls. Um, yes. But also, even that just there is unethical. If you stop an experiment just because it's not going to support your hypothesis... That, you can't do that. <laughs> that's confirmation bias. You're only looking for things that support you. That's not how you do research. When you research is well done and ethical, you have to accept that you might be totally wrong. Um, you and that, that happens. That happens. But he decided, hey, I was paid all of this money for the study. I haven't spent it all. Let's do it again. So he started a, within a year, he recruited boys for a second camp in Robbers Cave State Park in Oklahoma. He was determined to not repeat the mistakes of Middle Grove. So at the beginning, the two groups, they were the Rattlers and the Eagles, did not know about each other. So the first day they were there, they didn't even know there was another group of boys there. So he tried oh. to keep them separate in order to ensure that they bonded as an in-group and hated the other group. So that's kind of how, what he's doing here. Um, okay. In addition, Sharif relinquished his role as the puppet master, um, which is a condition that O.J. Harvey, his research assistant, made him step down because of how volatile he was. Oh. I... Hmm. I'm guessing O.J. Harvey may have been the research associate that he tried to fist fight when it didn't work before. So they're like, this guy is really intense. Maybe we shouldn't let him be around all of these children. <laughs> Valid, yes. Valid concern. Um, so at Robber's Cave, things were going well. After a tug of game of tug of war, in which they were defeated, the Eagles burned the Rattler's flag. Oh, wow. They say, then all hell broke loose with raids on the cabins, vandalism, and food fight. Each hmm. 
moment of confrontation was subtly manipulated by the research team they egged the boys on, providing them with the means to provoke one another. Um, and there was a book written about this where the author of the book, Perry, is like, who could have given them matches to burn the yeah. flag, right? So they were pushing this conflict because essentially uh. they wanted to see if groups of people who really disliked each other are able to come together and resolve their differences so they have to make them hate each other first. So they were really egging on this conflict. I don't know why having a group of 11 year olds start flag burning is the best way to do that. That seems a bit- Hate you! <laughs> seems a bit intense. Like, hey, you're 11, yeah. just become an arsonist. That's fine. Light yeah. shit on fire. That's a bit much. Um, Casual. Okay. So they got them fighting. The next stage was the reconciliation and the vindication mm. of Sheaf's theory. So. This one, he, again, did not start a forest fire. Good. In this, the boys found that their water supply had been cut off. So he just got rid of oh. water for children. Um, God! Right? Really intense. Um, so basically, they w the boys would have to locate the water tank high on the mountain and work together to remove the rocks that Harvey and Sharif had placed over the valve so they could open it again. So, <laughs> basically, it was a hot day and they didn't have much water and they said that's when the boundaries between the groups began to blur. Um, they took turns lifting and carrying the rocks away, but they realized there was a better and faster way of getting the job done. They formed a chain passing the rocks down the line and working as a single team. Hmm. Um, so Sharif was elated. Um, of course. And <laughs> with the publication of his findings, his status as world-class scholar was confirmed. The robber's cave oh, experiment God. is vital to social psychologists and is one of the best-known examples of realistic conflict theory. It's often oh, cited God. in modern research. But there is concern on if it was scientifically rigorous enough um, and why the results of the Middle Grove experience really couldn't get the boys to fight suppressed. Sharif was clearly driven by a kind of passion, Perry says, that shaped his view and also shaped the methods he used. He really did come from a tradition in the 30s of using experiments as demonstrations, as a confirmation of your theory not to find something new. Hmm. Um so sounds like a very roundabout way to say no i didn't stage this right this research and these findings right um and so the book is called the lost boys um it's by gina perry and i 100 percent want to read this book now um, but she traced sharif subjects who were men in their 70s at the time to ask them how they felt about having been guinea pigs None yeah. of them knew that they were part of an experiment. Bah, so bah, they bah. never debriefed them. They didn't know. There was no consent to this. Everybody thought they just went to summer camp. Jeez, um, what a mindfuck. Can you imagine? Right? She said all the boys had an uneasy feeling about the experiment. But somebody, Doug Grissett, um, who was in the Middle Grove experiment, said, I'm not traumatized by the experiment, but I don't like lakes, camps, cabins, or tents. She said, oh. undermining his own point. 
he was sent home from Middle Grove after a bout of homesickness that Sharif was worried would spread to other kids. What? Like he thought when one <laughs> okay. kid was really sad about being ho- not being home that everybody else would be. So he just sent him home. Um, okay. Grisette marvels at a letter he sent to his parents about a letter that was sent to his parents more than 50 years ago to recruit him for the experiment. Um, he said those letters are... This is a quote from Perry again, are a lesson in the art of skillful deception and subtle persuasion. He explains mm-hmm. in the letter to the parents that camp directors are interested in finding out what things can be done to give the boys a wholesome cooperative living experiment that, which will prepare the youngsters for better citizenship and to be leaders in their communities. Mm, so that's that is how very he manipulative. It, but they were trying to make them hate each other and then deal with a forest fire. Um, so this was kind of a huge thing that's like a bit controversial. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't like make any sense and it's not ethical there was no conformed consent there was no control group there was nothing other than manipulation um and i think there's so many different variables there that were not there's way too many effectively um and the thing is you know they compare it to milgram's experiment which milgram look it up i can see that it's horrifying um or even, like, the Stanford, like, prison study. Yeah. In some ways. Also horrifying. Um, yeah. And Sharif's ethical blunders might seem milder, but they have longer effects. Perry said when she was interviewing the boys for her book, she felt more like an interviewee. I had to answer their questions. Who was this guy? Why was I involved? How did the parents agree to me going away? What did I do during the experiment? All of the boys I spoke to had an uneasy feeling about this experiment. It has troubled people. Mm-hmm. And I liked that they really followed up. Um, yeah, that's cool. And basically they're saying that you know, they did figure out how to cooperate. That was basically the whole thing, is that the study allegedly showed that people who are in groups that dislike each other can overcome it when they have to cooperate and that having to cooperate and work with people from another group will overall reduce conflict between groups and that cooperative adventures really help things. And so like that, I mean, in a sense that can be valid, right? Exposure to a group of people that you have a prejudice against will often reduce that prejudice. A lot of the prejudice that we can have is based on the unknown, is based on fear. A lot of times when you spend time with people in that group, it can help. Right. But this was not good research. And it's also just the idea of, like, these boys were 11, they didn't know anything was going on, they were never debriefed, they just made them hate each other. And it's even interesting that the one guy from the first experiment was like, no, it hasn't had any effect on me, but I hate everything involved with it. It's like, That's Clearly you've had a trauma response. Coincidence there. Um, so it did traumatize people, and that's something that's important for researchers to understand, is that they might traumatize people, and they are responsible mm-hmm. for that. And that is the Robbers Cave experiment, which, how had I never heard of that? 
me either. I hadn't heard of that one. I hadn't heard of um, the Emma Axstein study that they did. Um, you know, and, and with the Robbers Cave one, like, I like the message of it. Like, that's, like, very wholesome and nice. Mm-hmm. But, like, the execution of it is just, like, horrifying. Absolutely. And I think, like, exposure can help and obviously exposure to groups that you have a prejudice against or have conflict with is not always safe for the other group depending on where you're at but i mean even to connect it like i have known people who have talked about growing up and being told one thing about a certain group of people and holding racist beliefs and then one day they had a co-worker that was of that race and they realized that spending time with that co-worker everything they had ever heard was totally wrong and yep. they're like, oh, that was ridiculous. Like, it, exposure can help. Yep. And all of that, like, ex- even exposure to, you know, movies and TV and media surrounding a group of people that you might be uncomfortable with, like, that can help you reframe, recontext, and work against your own prejudices. So, like, yes, it is important to realize what we can do to reduce that and to reduce conflict between groups of people whether it be like racial groups or whatever even just like schools like some schools have yeah. a huge conflict with other schools and stuff like that but i think putting boys lives in danger not okay not the way to do it and i also think that almost makes it seem like people can't overcome their issues with other groups of people and can't work through it unless their lives are in danger and they're forced to work together which i just don't see that as being true yeah we can't like set that up for people right and also like no people do not need a life-threatening emergency to change i think it might make them change much much faster yeah but that's not necessary and so it's a bit extreme right it's almost like like when you think about it like a form of like flooding Mm -hmm. in a way Absolutely. We, so, we don't need to flood everything away by risking your life. Because it's like, okay, the forest fire could have killed people. Even what if the boys hadn't figured out what they had to do yeah. to get their water back? Like, yeah. So you're basically depriving boys of water and making them hike up a mountain and then move a bunch of rocks. Like, somebody could have died if somebody had health conditions or other things out. gotten really yeah. sick. Like, passing out on a mountain is not the safest place to do so. Not ideal. Yeah. So, dangerous. Ugh. Danger. Super dangerous. Um, Well, cool. That was fun, talking about all this research. That was fun. And something, we got a couple things to wrap up. So, something that I forgot to mention. We have a shout-out today oh yeah we have a fan shout out we don't have any new patrons right now if you want to follow our patreon you may do so but i just wanted to give a quick shout out to elena from germany hey girl so she sent us such a sweet message about enjoying the podcast and also a bit of a correction on something that lauren had said about a horror movie uh, correcting yes. that Oma just means grandma in German and was not the character's Sorry. name. Thank you, Elena, for bringing that to our attention. We don't speak German. So uh, appreciate that. And thank you for yes. your kind message about our podcast. You're so sweet. We're glad yeah. to have you here. Yeah. Forever in Germany. What a joke. Hey. 
<laughs> how, how are things <laughs> in Germany? I don't know. Yeah, tell us. We're excited to know about where everybody comes from and what's going on in your world. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, so, obviously, we're planning in a couple weeks a live podcasting event. So, please be on the lookout once we create the event bright. It will be down in the episode description. I will add it as soon as we have it. Um, so that way you can buy tickets if you need to. If you want to come hang out with us on Zoom and be part of an episode yes. recording, we'd love to have you. Yes. And um, you can follow... Send us the screenshots. Yeah, to enter our raffle, send us a screenshot of money that you have donated to a um, you know racial justice organization or an organization or charity that is doing great work for the black community, either internationally, countrywide, or local to yourself. Um, so send yep. us the screenshot both of your proof of donation and of your um the mission statement of the charity that you yes. give to um and we will enter you into that raffle we'll announce it For at the live podcasting event but you do not have to be at the podcasting event to win the raffle and follow our facebook page spooky psychology saint charles for more information you can send the screenshots to there or to our instagrams lauren your instagram is lauren l-a-u-r-e-n underscore molika m-o-l-l-i-c-a l-m-f-t at instagram great and mine is megan baker lcsw at instagram so you can send your screenshots to our facebook messenger or to either of our instagrams depending on what social media is your preference and um lauren do you have any good shit yes um something i'm kind of excited about and i don't think i'll necessarily share where um, (laughs) i would not (laughs) no i would not um but i am going to start um a gig as an adjunct psychology professor at a university. Professor Lauren. Yes. I'm very excited. It's going to be very similar to what we do here. <laughs> Probably less swearing. Less swearing. Maybe not none, but less. I Just don't know less. how cool that school is about profanity in their classes. So I we'll don't have to know. See. We'll, we'll see. But congratulations, Lauren. I'm so excited for you, and I think you're going to be so good at teaching. Thank you. I'm very excited, too. I'm very excited to share my love of psychology with the young minds. I am so proud of you. Thank you. You're welcome. What's your good shit? So, I actually researched it this time. Hey! Hey! So, I... One of the things that I'm working on now is consuming more um, media from black content creators. I think that a lot of times white people... Or I guess in our case, white people with Lauren's Latin heat. You have some Latin heat. Yes. I do not. I'm a, a little Latin heat. <laughs> Lauren's got the Latin heat. I've got the 100% white as fuck. So um, I think people like us can have a bit of an advantage sometimes in what people share and what gets the most attention. And a lot of times there are a lot of great black content creators who do not get the credit that they deserve and they should so i've been looking more into this i just wanted to share some stuff with you guys um specifically with there is a website entirely called podcasts in color 
Cool. Then all it is, is it is a wonderful resource for finding podcasts that are run from by people of color and specifically black people. So one that has come highly recommended is a podcast called Crime Noir, which is a true crime podcast that focuses on missing and murdered black women and men, um, which is so important because the media often focuses on white women going missing. Um, especially with serial killers and stuff like that, um, it seems like white people get the most media. However, there are lots of crime stories out there that some of us may have never heard of. So I've heard good things about crime noir. There's one called Crime in Color. Um, cool. Cases of Color, Affirmative Murder, Fruit Loops, Serial Killers of Color, Sick Sad World, A True Crime and Horror Podcast, and Suspiria, a true crime podcast. So that's what they have listed on their true crime page. But if you're looking for anything else, they have different categories for everything. So if you, like myself, are trying to be more conscientious about expanding the diversity of the media that you consume, I would suggest you just pop on over to podcastincolor.com yeah. and find some new stuff to look at. There's so many good things out there. And that's something that I think a lot of us, especially white people, should do absolutely i have i have one too that i think would be a good one for you guys to check out um so there is uh something called melanin and mental health um and it was founded by two black women therapists to promote mental and emotional healing in black and latinx communities through multi-city events a therapist directory and a podcast um they really aim to bridge the gap between black and brown identities and mental health treatment through destigmatization and building community. So it sounds like something that's really cool. I was kind of peeking at it last night. Um, and maybe we can give them a lesson and uh, see if we could support them too. Yeah, definitely. I think it's an important time to just be a bit more conscientious and realize that like the stuff that algorithms suggest to you are oftentimes by white content creators um which does not mean that they're better at all it just means that they're who's getting attention so it's good to branch out and really be more conscientious about things so check some of that stuff out find some new stuff you're interested in yeah we support it yes all right, guys. Well, thanks so much for tuning in and getting spooky with us. We appreciate you. Thanks for getting spooky, guys. Bye. All right.